Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion in Rural Workplaces podcast, brought to you by the Owen Sound Chamber, welcoming communities and YMCA settlement services and Gray Bruce Local Immigration Partnership, featuring guests who are integral to the project and hosted by Tiffany James, Social Media and Events Coordinator at the Owen Sound Chamber of Commerce. I'd like to welcome my guest, Michael Johnston. Beginning his career with a Bachelor of Science with Applied Computer Science from Ryerson University in 1993, Michael changed things up in 2014 when he obtained a Juris Doctor in Law from York University, Osgood Hall Law School. Now an Indigenous lawyer, Johnson is experienced communications manager as well as a strong media and communication professional with a demonstrated history of working in the government relations industry. Michael's skills include software development, databases, trading systems, software, documentation, and capital markets. Welcome, Michael. Did I miss anything in your bio? No, that was certainly a, a word salad of stuff. I've done a lot of I've done a lot of things in uh, in my career for sure, and and law is now my latest adventure. What made you switch from computer science to law? That's a big question. How long is our show today? As long as you want. Well, I, I will try to be as brief as possible. So, when I was a computer scientist, I worked primarily in finance as a software designer, uh, engineer, and. It's a very lucrative business if you've got a skill set. There's a lot of demand for software people there. And so I was very comfortable in that business. I felt that I was pretty good at it. My various employers thought I was good at it as well. But quite literally, I found myself lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling and wondering if there wasn't something more I could be doing. And by that, I mean, was there more I could be doing from the community I came from? And that's something I want to add to your intro, is that I'm a member of the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation, and we are here today in their territory, the territory of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, which comprises the Saugeen First Nation and the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation. Is that what made you want to focus on Indigenous law to help your community? I believe strongly that if you've got an aptitude for something, if you have the opportunity for something, and by something I mean if you have the aptitude and opportunity to help, to benefit, to contribute, then you also have an obligation to do those things. And in one sense, sure, writing financial software helped somebody, helped me raise a family and keep everybody well-fed and warm, but I wanted to do something more. And so my strategy, um, and this is going to be pretty devious, was to copy somebody that had already done it. I think that's what many experts in our field do. So when I looked at the people that I admired, that I thought had affected real change in Canadian society, a lot of them had started with law. And so step one was, I should go to law school. And that was on a Wednesday. And then on Friday, I wrote the LSAT to get into law school. So for our listeners that don't know, we are in the Gray Bruce area of Ontario. And the Chippewas are one of our native tribes to the area, correct? So we are in the traditional territory of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. The Saugeen Ojibwe Nation has two communities. That is Saugeen First Nation, which is over sort of on that Lake Huron side of the Bruce Peninsula, and the Chippewas of Nawash First Nation, which is on the Georgian Bay side of the Bruce Peninsula, which we called the Saugeen Peninsula back in the day. And maybe we'll call it that again one day. We are advocating for the name to be changed back from from Bruce. Based on your background and expertise, where do you feel the 
biggest change can be done in rural workplaces for more inclusion of our Indigenous communities? That's a wide-ranging question. I've been lucky enough. I, I studied and I worked for many years in Toronto. Toronto's a very metropolitan, very heterogeneous place. There are lots of different people from around the world there. And uh, I found that enlightening. I found that invigorating. I enjoyed being steeped in the cultures from around the world. Here in Owen Sound, where we're sitting today, uh, there's less diversity. There tends to be, you know, fewer people from the diaspora coming and settling in Owen Sound. More so, I've noticed, than before. We're getting a variety of restaurants on the main strip now, which is nice to see. I left Owen Sound to go to school in the big city, we call it. And that was one thing I missed when I moved back was all of the diversity that you get from a big city. So it is nice to see that we are slowly changing in our rural areas, but it is still very slow. Do you think, is it rural is scary to our um, newcomers of the area? Or what, what do you think prevents newcomers from traveling outside of the big cities to the rural areas? Largely geography, I think, because mo- most people coming to Canada, of course, come through one of our major ports of entry. And just statistically speaking, you're going to find the support you need closest to where you enter because as soon as you come into the country you're looking for those things that are going to sustain you sustain your family and if they're there if those services and opportunities are available to you in those major ports of entry then that's where people are going to settle typically now that said i think there are are a lot of people coming from other places in the world where they have lots of skills that would be very beneficial to smaller communities around the country including ours and so I don't think it's a matter of fear. And I'm saying this without the benefit of any you know, data on this, but I suspect it's just a question of opportunity. Are we presenting small town Canada, rural Canada, as a place for people to come and settle? Not just maybe to take your engineering degree and drive a cab in Toronto, unfortunately, but maybe instead consider bringing that engineering degree to some of the great companies we have here in the Owen Sound area that need that same sort of expertise. How do you think we could draw them up to our area? It's gorgeous up here. It's beautiful. You and I both know that. You probably more so than I do. But how would we make them feel more that we are inclusive? We want them to come. We want to visit and perhaps stay and help. Because I do know, working in the field I do, we are in need of employees in the area. Like employers are always struggling to try to find, and there's this untapped resource out there. How do a city of Owen Sound or counties like Gray and Bruce draw those newcomers to our area? And in turn, in that, how do we support already in the area our Indigenous community and make them feel more included and want to participate in the job market in our area? Great. Several questions all at once. I think you cheated there. So this is a situation where our leaders, our elected officials, the people that work within our planning committees, both at the municipal and at the county and even at the provincial level, all have to work together. They all have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time because it's a multifaceted question. So I'm going to go to the first one, which is that in Owen Sound, it's difficult 
difficult to find a place to live. We have a real housing shortage here in Owen Sound. And by that, I mean an affordable housing shortage. I'm sure if you've got a deep enough pocket, you can find something around here. But if specifically we're trying to attract new Canadians or if we're trying to attract Indigenous talent, it has to be housing that's affordable to them in a reasonable way. And so that's one thing that we can work at at the municipal level. We can work at that from the county level, and we can work at that from the provincial level. And what that means is that all those levels of government have to get on the same track with what they're trying to do, which is get some affordable housing, shovels in the ground, houses ready to go. So at that point, then you can advertise in those major population centers, those places of landing, perhaps where new Canadians are coming into Canada, and say, there's a place for you here in Owen Sound. Or there's a place for you here in Collingwood or Barrie or Kingston, places outside the major urban centers. We have to look at job creation, and that can be in two ways. It is how do you support our existing businesses so that they're able to employ people? Do we have levers that we can pull at the municipal level that makes it easier for businesses to employ? Are there subsidies? Are there tax breaks? Are there zoning or bylaw changes that we can make that would make running a business easier in Owen Sound, easier to bring people in? And the second side of that creating businesses, what do we do to help people start businesses? If you've got a great idea, maybe for a fish hatchery, maybe for uh, some kind of manufacturing in the area or, or farming. In Grey Bruce County, we are surrounded by, like you said, we are on the territory of this Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, yep, Saugeen Ojibwe Nation. And there is always an unconscious bias. As much as we don't want to admit or we don't know, that's what they say. It's an unconscious bias. We don't realize it's there. How do you overcome that stigma? How do we get people to recognize their unconscious bias when it comes to the Indigenous in our area and make them more welcoming and make them feel more heard and understood. I know we all do the land acknowledgements now, but is that enough? It's never enough. How would you, as an Indigenous lawyer, as part of the community, what would you think we can do better to make our Indigenous communities feel more included, more supportive? I'm going to answer as an Indigenous person, not as an Indigenous lawyer, because that lived experience isn't related to my my job. I think I get treated better as an Indigenous person than as a lawyer, but (laughs) (laughs) but it comes comes with the profession. We were talking earlier about, about restaurants on Main Street and how it's good to see restaurants serving food from around the world. So food, good food, opens a lot of doors. And there's a lesson to be learned there, is that we're more comfortable, say, with Tibetan food because there's a a lovely Tibetan restaurant on 2nd Avenue there. We're more comfortable with South Asian food because there are a lot of great South Asian restaurants, Mexican and so on and so forth. That experience is what softens our perspective. And so there's not a, a legislative way, I think, to fix this. There's not a rule or a law or a bylaw that we're going to enact to make this better. But what I'm going to suggest to people listening in today is along the lines of you know enjoying some good food is interact with an Indigenous person. Take away that stigma. I, you know, I hesitate to say stigma. Um, it's just unfamiliarity. You know, the, the first time you have a spider walk across your hand, you leap into the air. 
And you scream like a child. I still do that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask you, I'm going to drop that stigma, Tiffany. <laughs> so what we're going to have to do, I think, as a community, and I, and I like to use that word community, what we're going to have to do as a community is start opening those doors to make the effort to engage non-Indigenous to Indigenous and vice versa as well. So I know that there are many people from from our local Indigenous communities that are here in Owen Sound, that live here in Owen Sound, that work here in Owen Sound, and that's a good start. So I think the more interaction we all have, the better that gets. For a very long time, Owen Sound was a, a place of two solitudes, if I may, where you had European people, we'll call them, and Indigenous people, and very little of anything else. And some interaction between, but largely those communities kept to themselves, kept their business within themselves. So if I look at Owen Sound today, there aren't a lot of indigenous businesses. There are a handful. Yeah, but there is but, but not a lot, right? And so I feel like there are doors that need to be opened that in all of our minds about enabling this interaction, about not being reluctant to break bread with an Indigenous person or with a non-Indigenous person. So there's not a, an easy way to do this. There's not a secret sauce or a trick. It really is sit down at the table, say, hi, where are you from? Oh, tell me about your background. Because, and, I, and I'm going on at length here, I know, but let me relate to you. When I was in law school, I was very much looking forward to joining a group of really intelligent people and having amazing conversations and sitting up late at night, you know, smoking French cigarettes and talking intellectually. Um, it didn't work out like that at all. I'm sorry for that. Well, it was it was an interesting time. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> but what surprised me in in law school was how little people know about Indigenous history in Canada. How little people know about lived Indigenous experience in Canada, which is unique in a lot of ways. And also, sadly, not unique in, in the ways in which Indigenous people suffer various kinds of exclusion or discrimination or bias in broader society. And lots of people have experienced that in Canada, and it's not right for any of us. But to the question of, you know, how do we engage Indigenous people in our communities, it's by, by engaging them, by putting out a hand and saying, hi. Do you see that our current state, is that changing? Are we becoming more interested and more engaging and wanting to interact and have the the feedback and, you know, how can we do better? Like You hear that a lot. Do you find that we are changing that narrative a little? I really hope so. I want to hope so. I would say that my assessment of it is that at the same time that we're increasing that engagement, we're learning more, we're seeing happily more reparations at a national level for some of the terrible things that happened in the past and that overdue and probably too short in the long run. But it's wonderful to see those things start to happening. But the flip side of that happening is that there may be a kind of polarity growing as well in Canadian society. So at the same time that we are seeing these wonderful advances, we're also seeing some pushback from people that don't like seeing those kinds of advances. 
And that's troubling. So what I don't want to happen is that it turns into an us and them issue where you're either on the side of Indigenous people or desperately against them. Yeah, it's hard to navigate that because there's just... It is, and this is a dinner table conversation that I have often. And I'm always happy to have it. I'm always happy to get the question because it gives me an opportunity to share. I I don't want to say educate because I want to say share. I like Why would you hesitate to say educate? Because I think we all need to learn as we get older. You're constantly learning. And I think that it is an education because we've been so, not we've, but there has been a closed door sort of situation or not in my backyard sort of thing. So it would be an education, wouldn't it? That's how we learn. That's how we grow as a human being. When my kids go to school, it's work for them. They're like, oh, I've got to go to school today. But when they go to a slumber party, it's a good time. So you educate at school and you share at the slumber party. So I like share because it's more comfortable. It allows me to interact with you on a more personal level. It's not me speaking from the mount to you. Yes, okay. We're having a conversation because there are a lot of things about your lived experience, how you grew up, how you saw the world that I don't share and I don't understand, right? So the understanding between all the different polities in our grand community that understanding has to go both ways. It's not just that you know non-Indigenous Canada has an obligation to understand Indigenous people. It does, for sure, but also vice versa. Now, perhaps there's less moral weight on the Indigenous side, but at the same time, it's better that we have a conversation and not a one-way lecture. Lecture, Yeah, for sure. So I like the concept of sharing, and I like having this, this dinner table conversation. And it's always very long because the issues that face Indigenous people today come from hundreds of years of history and interaction, some good, a lot bad. And none of that is simple. It's not something you're going to wrap up. I get asked, and I've heard this question many times, how do we solve the Indian problem? Whoa. Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded question. Whoa, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Yeah. Okay, we don't say Indian anymore. We'll say Indigenous. But there's not a simple answer. It's a long, complicated question with many facets that all have to interact at the same time. And that's why I think the progress is slow, although there has been meaningful progress. There have been a couple of really big decisions that have come out just recently in British Columbia and in Ontario for significant reparations that are going back to Indigenous people who deserve them, who should have gotten them a long time ago. So that's good to hear, and it's a step on the way. Do you think those reparations will make our Indigenous communities more open to the conversations now with our non-Indigenous? Because there's a long history of hurt, and that's putting it lightly. And how do we bridge that gap? How do I approach you outside of the dinner table and say, I want to help, teach me, how do I help? As an equal. That's how we approach. And that's how we should approach each other as equals. So I think various kinds of settlements, agreements, reparations, whatever you want to call them, these help Indigenous people in Canada because it puts us, in many ways, on the same footing as other Canadians. So even if it's just financially, if I can sit down at a desk in the bank and talk about a business deal or a capital arrangement because I have funding available to me, now I'm an equal. 
at least in that conversation. And, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, money talks. So certainly, go around. certainly seeing these kind of agreements starts making things more fair so we can address each other as equals. How do we get more of our Indigenous community engaged in our workplaces outside of their communities as well? How do we engage them as an equal in the workplace, make them feel included and heard? When I was a young man, I did not plan to go to university. I'm not sure I planned to finish high school. Did you go to school in the area? No. So I went to high school uh, mostly in Toronto uh, and obviously Ryerson University, now the Metropolitan University of Toronto, I think it's called now, or Metropolitan Toronto University. Yeah. So Egerton Ryerson, and I'm probably rehashing history here, Egerton Ryerson was one of the architects of the residential school system. So they thought maybe we'll change the name. The name. That's a good idea. Yeah, we were okay with that. Yeah. So it's now the, I think it's Metropolitan Toronto University now. Well, that's a step. Sure. And that, that kind of thing is is great. It shows that somebody's listening. Lots of people are listening, and that's wonderful. But what I wanted to say was that when I was a, a child, when I was a teenager, I never planned to go to university. It was almost accidental. At the time, I think I was waiting tables, serving spaghetti. And in a blinding flash of obvious, I realized that if I didn't do anything different, this is all I would ever do. So one of the reasons, I think the primary reason why it didn't ever occur to me to go to university was because no one in my family ever had. And less so now, but certainly in in my generation, we didn't have examples to follow into higher education or into business or into careers. So professional people were, for me, were almost mythical, right? Doctors weren't real. They were on television, Lawyers were just people that you saw play acting. These weren't real people. And since then, I feel strongly that one of the things that that I can do for my community is just hang around. Just hang around so that people in the community, particularly the young people in the community, can say, hey, look, there's an actual lawyer or an actual computer scientist, or an actual doctor. We have a lot of people now who have come out of higher education and have careers and have professional designations whose great value to the community is just by being these stellar examples of what you can achieve. So a lot of Indigenous youth, it's not that they lack horizons or can't see the horizons, it's that the horizon doesn't exist. They start by standing in holes. There's no horizon to see. There's no one to follow. So... Answer your question. How do we engage, re-engage Indigenous people in both in our communities and our business cultures and our educational systems? I would suggest by inviting them. So I've not seen, although I think it would be a great idea, um, for employers to have uh, something akin to a career day, perhaps in the First Nations communities. And we're looking for employees. It's the simplest things that you just don't think of, isn't it? Why not? Sure, why not? Um, I've been asked several times because my first career was made in Toronto. I was there for a a couple decades. And then I came home. So I moved back to the area about five years ago. And so I've been asked by several people from my own community who don't live here, how do I come home? How do I come back to where we all started? So there's a desire there. It's still challenging because, again, we have the housing issue that we talked about before. There's the work issue. Is there appropriate work for professional people in the community? 
do I have things like medical care? So another thing that we have a, an issue with in the area is do we have enough doctors for the area, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these things are, um, as we were talking about earlier, these are all facets of the same problem that all have to be solved at the same time. So if we address the housing problem, we don't fix the engagement problem because now people have a place to live, but they don't have a job or a doctor. I'm going to switch it up a little bit. The main focus of this project that we have taken on with our Welcoming Communities Partnership is to bridge that gap and that wall that comes up when it comes to diversity and inclusion in rural areas. Can I ask why you think it's important that we bridge that gap? I know why I think it's important, but I would like to hear from you why you think it's important. I'm an open person. So on a very personal level, it's important to me because I am most comfortable when there are lots of diverse people around me, honestly. I've noticed in myself, and perhaps it's a bias of a way, but I get a little, I don't want to say nervous, but I'm less at ease if there's only one type of person around me. I like seeing many different faces. I like hearing many different accents. I like tasting many different foods. All of this is the beauty of what we have to share with each other, to share with our communities. So this is fantastically important. This is what builds strength into our communities, like the fibers through a sheet of fiberglass or the rebar in a piece of concrete, right? These threads of our cultures bind us together if we embrace them. But if we insist on confining ourselves to only what we know best and only what we find familiar, then we're missing out on so much. This is such a beautiful place that we live in here. And I can only think, you know, how much more amazing it would be if, you know, along our canal, we had a Foods of the World Day. Concepts like that that bring lots of people out and see lots of different things and lots of different skin colors and accents and shapes of eyes and backgrounds. And it makes it less scary, I guess, for lack of a better word. But if you celebrate it, the more people are there to be included and enjoy it. The world out there is a big place. And a lot of our young people who haven't experienced it yet probably don't have a good sense of how big that world is. But guaranteed that culture shock is going to be bigger if they don't get a little bit of exposure. So I think it does a service to our young people as well to share the world with them now before they step out there. Because we know, as wonderful as a place Owen Sound is, we know that our young people are going to explore. They're going to see other parts of Canada, and hopefully other parts of the world. And I hope, I really hope that they bring those back. Yeah, well, you came back. I came back, and it's, you know, still trying to uh, still trying to reintegrate, still enjoying the reintegration, but it is a challenge for sure. So you've been back in the area now for five years. How would you see our area has changed in those five years to be more inclusive? Have you seen a change? There's always room for improvement. Is there areas you could say that we need improvement in? There always is. But have you seen a change since you've been home? Well, we're having this conversation. So that's a huge change right there. The first step is awareness. I was proud to participate in the Pride Parade on the weekend. I know it's not exactly primarily about ethnicity today, but diversity and inclusion. It's all aspects. And that also includes that. So from a lawyer perspective, I would say everybody under the charter is what we're talking about today. So that was great to see all those happy people out on the weekend having a good time. So that's absolutely a change. So there is a progress. There's progress and it's going to be 
generational, I would say. All the best things we do are generational. Yeah, I love that Gen Z right now. I got to tell you, as a millennial, I think they're changing the world and for the better. I love it. Well, you have two Gen Zs in your house right now. Sure, and I'm doing my best to indoctrinate them uh, as we speak. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're doing a fantastic <laughs> job. What is our Indigenous community? I'm sorry I'm focusing on that, but I just feel it's so important right now. What would you say their biggest concern is when it comes to being to diversity and inclusion in rural areas? I'm not going to answer that question. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why I'm not I think I know your question. answer as to why you're not. Because I don't speak, speak for, for the for community. Yeah. Can you speak on your behalf? That's really important. So teachable moment. It's really important for Indigenous people not to speak for other Indigenous people. There is actually a political role in our traditional political system for a speaker. There was a role where you would give somebody a message and say, not just a messenger, but a speaker, someone who would take the concept, the idea, the message you were trying to share and take it to some other group and have that conversation. But it was a, it was a designated role. And so these days, even so, it's not proper for one person, not designated so, to speak for a community. Now, that said, from my personal experience, I think the benefit of diversity to us as a community is literally being able to walk into a store and not have someone look at you suspiciously. And that still happens. It's being able to have a drink with dinner without someone looking over their shoulder at you. It's being able to walk into a bank or another business and be taken seriously. So the kinds of bias I think that Indigenous people face a lot of times are subtle and other times can be quite overt. I would say that there is less of that now amongst the younger generation. So certainly when I look at engagement in my kids' schools, there's a lot more conversation about Indigenous contributions to the country, about history, the actual history. Not all of it gets taught in school. Some of it's pretty dark. And it, it certainly, there's a lot of depth there. Maybe they don't cover in the school that I think they could do more of. But I really see that the kids are more accepting of each other and understand more about Indigenous culture than my generation did or, or your generation oh, did. I know that just from my young sons who are in elementary school right now, they are learning so much more than I was ever taught about our Indigenous culture. Even to grade two and five, respectively, is what my son's grades they're in, and they're learning about residential schools. That wasn't something I learned about until well into my 30s. In an age-appropriate fashion. Obviously, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. There's some pretty dark stuff there they're not teaching them, but I didn't even know. That wasn't even something I was taught or learned when I was in school. So to see that change, I think, I know you didn't like the word educate, but they're in school. But the more we can get when they're young to learn that, like I can't even remember if I was taught about our indigenous cultures. And if I was, it was very little. Um, I wasn't. And yet the residential school experience, it really is fundamental to our communities. It underlies so many people's histories. And now a lot of those people that were in residential school have passed on, but their families live with it as well. And in my family as well. So I didn't go to residential school, but I'm a product of it in the same way in that it changed how my grandmother lived and it changed how my mother lived. And so it changed my life. And that's what a generational impact is. 
So I can say for a fact that I don't have as good a command of my own language as I might have absent residential school interrupting the family structure in the way that it did. And that bothers me. With a half a century under my belt, I'm disappointed that I don't speak my own language as well as I would like to. And it's not entirely my fault. Based off your background and expertise, how do you feel the project that we've taken on to introduce and change that mindset around diversity and inclusion in our area? What do you think the main focus should be for rural areas right now? Oh, challenging question. Diversity and inclusion. Inclusion, I think, is the more important. I would agree. Part of those. Uh, Difficult to enforce diversity in a workplace, but we can certainly, if not enforce, we can mandate inclusion. So within schools, for example, inclusivity is built in within our government structures. Inclusivity is built in. And that, I think, is what makes people more comfortable. I was a, a coach, various athletics, for many, many years. And one of my principles was that when we're putting together a team, when you're putting together a club, as the season starts, you find the people that are on the margins of the group and you pull those people into the center because many people have the ability to fit in. Life of the party kind of people. And they're very good at that. But it's those people that have a difficult time fitting in with joining a group, those are the people that we have to lean into and say, come on in. We want to hear what you have to say. We want you to participate. And that pays off in the long run because those people will remember that inclusion and they'll carry that forward. And I've seen this in practice over and over and over. So if we map this concept onto what we're trying to do with the diversity and inclusion initiative, the people that are dominant culture in our community, those are the people that find it easy to fit in. It's everybody else that's on the margins of our community that we have to reach out to and say, come on in. How do we do that? By just saying what I said. Okay, come on in, everybody. <laughs> come on in. Share with us what you have and being thrilled by that, being being overjoyed by that. So if I'm working with somebody and they bring me a bit of food from their culture, what a privilege. That's so amazing. So, And I'm coming back to this concept of food a lot. I know. Are uh, you hungry? No, I'm not. I'm not even a very big eater. <laughs> we but, have some cookies. <laughs> but food and sitting at a table with people is one of the very basic ways that human beings have to see eye to eye. When we're sitting down, we're all looking eye to eye. And that's important. That's so important. So it's these little things, and we take them for granted. These, what we call the dominant culture bias. When people who are familiar with each other sit down, they take that familiarity for granted. But there's somebody on the margin who's not comfortable in that situation or is just looking through the window. And that's where I think we have to do most of our work. Because what I would not like to see is people coming into our community, whether they're Indigenous people coming out of the First Nations or whether they're New Canadians or even people of non-European backgrounds perhaps moving into the area. I wouldn't want to see them make insular communities 
within our community and us to be invisible to each other. How do you bridge that divide? Because you do find, you notice in rural areas when you do have newcomers in the area, they all will gravitate towards each other because it is familiar and it is comfortable. It has to come from both sides, though, I guess, the welcoming aspect of it. How would you tell someone to engage, to welcome, to be open, to start that conversation? Well, from the Chamber of Commerce perspective, for us, that means we're going to make events that specifically include people. So maybe it's the Foods of the World event. Maybe it's a Christmas party, and we seek out community leaders and say, can you bring to us how you celebrate this time of year in your tradition? Maybe they don't celebrate Christmas. Maybe they do something else. So these are almost event planner concepts, but the philosophy that underlies them is something that has to permeate our organizations, our municipal organizations, our business organizations like the Chamber of Commerce, our social organizations. So if the Chamber of Commerce wants to, we can be that catalyst that pushes the municipality to engage in this way, that reaches out to various social and business organizations in the area to say, can we engage in this way to cooperate with them, perhaps in doing these kinds of engagements, setting stuff up on our own. It's more like if you build it, they will come sort of thing. Right. And my comment there about this having to permeate the organization, it has to be something that everybody buys into, right? Top to bottom through the organization. And I would strongly suggest that these kinds of ideas that we're talking about, to throw the doors wide and say, this is a welcoming place. We want to hear about everyone's experience. We want to know what you love. And we all want to know what your challenges are, too. I mean, you can ask me what my experience is and how I find it difficult, perhaps, to blend, to be part of the community on sound. But what about somebody from South Asia or someone from Africa or someone from Central America? They have a different perspective on it. That's probably different from mine. And we should be asking them. So if we have this top-down approach, meaning the leaders of these organizations that we're talking about, the business organizations, the municipal organizations, if the leaders are pushing this agenda, if you will, I think it's liable to get more traction. Bottom-up is great, but leaders have to invest. Leaders have to put their money where their mouth is with respect to this. It can't. If we're paying lip service to this, it's not going to happen. I appreciate you coming in and talking to us today. It was fascinating. As always, you know I enjoy talking with you, Michael. If our listeners wanted to find out more information about you, where could they find that and where could they get a hold of you if they had any questions? Anyone wanting to reach me can look for mwjohnstonlaw.com. And they'll find me. And I can also give a plug. I was just going to see you beat me to it. <laughs> I get nothing I get nothing for this. But the Bank of Montreal, who I'm, I'm not affiliated with, my wife is. She works for them. But again, there's no feedback here. But they have put together actually a quite a good educational program, free to the public, that you can access online. It takes about 45 minutes. That tries to share an Indigenous perspective in Canada. And you can find that at our-impact.com. Dot bmo.com. So is it a survey? Is it a quiz? What, uh, what is it? It's an online educational tool. It's really quite good. I've done it. And uh, I'll admit I'm fairly critical of this sort of content at times. But I think that this one's actually uh, pretty well done. And so uh, I'm comfortable recommending it that people have a look Can at it. Can you say that one more time? The, the website is our-impact.com. 
bmo.com, where BMO is BMO. Well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this Owen Sound Chamber of Commerce podcast. For more episodes and information, visit gb-deib.ca.